And we're live. We are back with another episode of the podcast. I'm super pumped for this discussion today. Speaking with a couple uh, cattle ranchers, I'm not even sure if that's the, the, the proper terminology, but really interested in digging into the anti-fiat food industry and the emerging solutions that are being built by motivated people uh, in this industry. But first, I just want to say thank you to the Bitbox O2 uh, hardware wallet for sponsoring the show. Um, I always advise people, and I think it's best practice that when you buy Bitcoin, you also take custody of your Bitcoin. And of course, hardware wallets are an, a convenient and secure way of doing so. It's a really great product. It's affordable. It has a lot of great features for uh, for noobs and for more experienced people alike. Um, if you want to check them out, you go to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapid fire for 5% off. And uh, like I said, I'm really having fun using it. And I'm even, you can even roll or, or uh, select your own seed, which is why I have all these seed words in a bag, painstakingly cut them all out. Anyhow, boys, welcome to the show. Uh, how you guys doing? Howdy, brother. Doing well, man. Hey, it's great, great to be here, John. Uh, honored to be on your pod. Yeah, well, I'm uh, honored to have you guys. I, I love the initiative that you both are, are spearheading. You know, it's no secret to most people in the community that we are anti-fiat in its many forms, and food is definitely one of the more obvious and egregious forms of, of fiat that has, uh, you know, seeped into modern culture with, you know, extremely negative consequences for people's physical, mental health, and longevity, and all that kind of stuff, and that's been a, an area that I've been super interested in, interested in for a long time, and it's so great to see the synthesis of that kind of Bitcoin philosophy and the back to the land, regenerate the land, anti-fiat food movement uh, going on. So Joel, uh, why don't you introduce yourself uh, and your your project first, and then we'll, we'll hit Anthony. All right. My name's Untapped Growth Guys, Joel. Um, I'm kind of heading up this uh, cattle co-op that you guys have been hearing rumors about, where we're kind of bringing the synthesis of the Bitcoin ethos into regenerating the land, fixing the, like the soil and building high quality, low time preference food to feed the Citadels. Um, so yeah, I'm first on the podcast with Nanya. You guys get introduced to one of the people who are partnering with me on this project today with uh, Poof. And uh, really looking forward to this with you guys. Sweet. Yeah, right, so. Go for it. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I grew up on a dairy farm and uh, just a little bit of brief uh, background on me, 50 to 75 cow dairy farm. And uh, and I witnessed uh, I witnessed the the farm um, not being profitable anymore. My dad had to go get a second job, um, and uh, experiencing the uh, when the farm was profitable, all of us boys working for the farm uh, to uh, to not being profitable anymore. Him have to getting a second job. That was very interesting. Um, going from you know a more of a relaxed. Uh, Relax might not be the right word, but uh, motivated, but um, to more of a systematic uh, clocking in, clocking out, uh, you know, ice fishing and, you know, going to the sail barn and stuff like that was no longer part of our uh, routine or our family um, outings or whatever due to not being profitable, the farm not being profitable anymore. So I uh, grew up in an Amish community and uh, my mom was actually Amish until she was 12. But uh, then her uh, family left the Amish. But uh, so the actually since I found Bitcoin, looking back, 
um, it, it makes more sense to me. And uh, John, you played a, a big role in that, helping me to uh, consolidate my thoughts, especially around Bitcoin, but also around um, just my my daily grind and my my job um, and you know what I'm doing. But uh, so we uh, kind of give it, giving a little bit more of a um, view into uh, the the farming. So I um, I I've been in ag my whole life, and we got to uh, I was uh, part of a feed mill. Uh, operation and uh, so some of the things that I've witnessed uh, in the farming um, has been has been kind of interesting due to uh, you know laser thin margins of, of farmers um, they you know had to resort to feeding uh, basically subsidies of uh, uh, or byproducts of uh, of the industrial food world uh, feeding things like uh, you know distillers grain um, citrus pulp and uh, whiskey slop uh, you know, all these different things to, um, to try to be profitable. Basically they're, they're you know, the backs are against the wall. Um, it's all about efficiency, um, and, uh, efficiency of, of raising the, uh, the product, uh, whether it's milk or whether it's beef, um, just being, uh, you know, basically everything is geared on average daily gains and, uh, at all costs, basically. Um, and untap you had some uh Joe, you had some better insights on that um as far as what what drove because uh the fiat uh the fiat world still was driving the farmers to make these decisions and and um you know driving them to because they were just feeding the consumer what they wanted right and so um yeah that's kind of yeah so i mean like everything right the money is supposed to be what carries the information in the marketplace of what the consumer and producer are communicating to each other, right? And in fiat economy, the communication signal broke down, as we all know. It just corrupted all of our communication between producer and consumer in every market. And the reason I wanted Poof to open here is his story is a perfect illustration of what we're trying to fix, both, both with Bitcoin but then where Bitcoin, the rubber meets the road of us building things in the real world, like farms and families and communities of how do we produce healthy food for everybody, right? Um, so when you have that communication signal due to broken money breakdown, you get corrupted incentives through the whole marketplace. Part of that's because of the heavy regulatory environment. Part of that's just due to just signal to noise ratio type bullshit. So we ended up solving for all the wrong incentives. And this is how it applies in farming as the stories Anthony's is gonna be telling um, of just the wrong goals make us solve for the wrong principles because the, wrong, the money's creating the wrong incentives. And this is what Bitcoin's gonna help us fix. And this project, one of the first iterations of where we kind of can fix the food and help fix the world through it on the backbone of what Bitcoin's doing to create a new economy and a new communication structure of how humans collaborate. Is that, that good, Anthony? Is that what you want me to yeah. capture? Yeah. Well, one, so, one, question uh, you, one, one question for you, Anthony. So you mentioned that at a certain point, you guys went from, and I'm, I know this is not a perfect characterization, but kind of like the ideal family farm life, right? Where you're working mm -hmm. on the farm and you're able to do other activities outdoors and that kind of stuff to the point of being squeezed where, you know, your family members have to go out and get additional jobs to try to make and meet, make ends meet. Mm -hmm. What, what was, what were the forces 
specifically that caused the margins to shrink so dramatically that necessitated that in your family's experience? Uh, cost of uh, cost of different equipment, cost of uh, upgrades to the farm. Um, the we were so we were uh, you know creating or making milk, so uh, milking parlor equipment, uh, just upgrade, just just the uh, kind of the inflation, um, really, um, of of the dollar. Uh, now that I look back, because you know as things break down, uh, the labor to fix the product, we did we didn't have an. Uh, uh, you know, on-farm mechanic um, wasn't really any of our tastes. My dad wasn't really a mechanic either, and so that is what drove um, what drove that is due to basically uh, the the price of milk was the same, and everything, all the other costs kind of just rose. Whether it was labor to fix parts, parts itself, um, new equipment to you know uh, to swap out old equipment. Uh, basically, yeah, those so, so were, just- would have been the factors. Just costs going up faster than income, and and when when did this occur? When when did when did this happen? Just so I know, have an uh, idea of the time frame. Early, uh, right around the two thousand, would have been okay. the the time that this would have uh, impacted us. And it'd be a really interesting statistic for uh, WTF uh, happened in nineteen seventy one. I don't know this uh, for a fact, but I know when uh, when I hear my dad talk and my grandpa talk about um, farming in the old days. Uh, everybody was a farmer raising, uh, uh, raising 50 to 70 or not, you know, everybody, but in the community, um, you know, the, the 50 to 7,500 cow dairies were the common. And I'm really curious on when that started to the, the whole go big or go home narrative, um, basically to survive, you had to go big or go home basically. So, uh, I'm curious where that is. I don't know if uh, Ben will listen to this or not, but I'm really curious. It, my, my guesstimation would be around 1971, that started to escalate and, and go up. I, I don't know that. That's just a theory. But uh, my guess is the farm went, the, the, the uh, cow numbers and the beef numbers on, on small farms started to escalate around 1971. It's such a yeah. great example of the insidious effects of the money printing, right? So like that, the, the, the increase in costs and the, the, the decreasing of the margins or the narrowing of the margins necessitates cheaper inputs, right? So then your feed gets worse, that, that necessitates better operational like efficiency. And, and maybe that means that more cows get their heads stuck in more things. And right, so you get worse lives from, for the cows, worse inputs for their diet, ultimately a worse product of meat for the people that are eating it. And that process just continues to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And this mm-hmm. is like the fiatification of our food system, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like, and, and like everything, it's like, that value of the money is our measurement of time, right? So as you increase that speed, you increase not only speed of consumption and consumerism, but you shorten the time preference of everybody in the economy. And this is a demonstration of how that happened to the farmers, right? You get a shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter time preference where first we're building the soil for generations to now we're trying to raise a healthy animal herd to now we're trying to feed an animal to get fat in a shorter and shorter number of days, feeding them more and more bullshit. And that just everything just gets constricted slowly over time, just tighter and tighter and tighter and to go faster, 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 faster to stay above water. I mean, like if you think about when the go big or go home stuff happened, that was right within a couple of years of 1971. And that's when the industrialization of our farm economy started, where we're choking out the families one after the other until it catches up, even with the guys who grew up really close to that world, like Poof and the, in the Amish world. 
It's just one farm after another went under because they couldn't keep up with that speed as it got larger and larger and faster and faster. And in my opinion, we never should have tried to keep up with it because it's not the right way to do things. It's just based on the distortion of a fiat incentive. It's so crazy how like how it affects so many things. And as you're saying, like to, to squeeze as much efficiency as possible out of that animal, then you wind up, you know, using all sorts of medications, I presume. And, you know, you just, it becomes just maximizing yield, right? Like that's your primary objective, almost irrespective of what the outcome is. Like if the outcome is a th something that can be put into, turned into a burger, then that's a success. Who cares what that burger carries with it in terms of the information it gives your body or the nutrients it gives your body to say nothing of the life of the animal that was that it was taken from, right? Or and or and, the and, secondary uh, effects on the soil in itself, right? Like whether or not, like uh, like one of my favorite concepts is in the Bert, in the book Dirt: The Erosion of Civilizations, that when a civilization invests in its soil bank and building fertility over time, that civilization prospers for generation after generation. But when they start stripping from their soil, that civilization usually collapses within a generation or two. Because once again, like everything, like central banking, right? Are you saving for the future or are you stealing from the future from your children? The soil was kind of like historically across like ancient Rome, the Aztecs, like it's the same thing that we're looking at now with central banking, but we've done it in both because of central banks now rather than just with farms. So the whole thing is just synonymous. Like, are you investing in building that capacity for work and everything you do? So when you work, you're also creating more potential energy. Or are you stripping all the potential out of the system to get more today? And just an interesting, uh, uh, interesting tidbit here. So I'm reading the book uh, From Dirt to Soil um, by Gay Brown, and a very good book. And in there, uh, he uh, made a point that in, back in the USDA back in 1963, did a uh, soil, big soil test in, I think it was Oklahoma somewhere. Um, and so they did, and then they took analysis of the carbon and the organic matter and uh, all the different levels that makes the soil a living, uh, you know, a healthy living system. And, uh, and so they went back in 2014 because he was part of the board. And so he went back to, um, uh, they went back to Oklahoma and did uh, another test, the exact same field. And just to do a, you know, a surface level uh, uh, analysis, they went from, the topsoil went from 34 inches in 1963 to 15 or uh, 14 inches in 2014. And so um, we're, we're basically we're strip mining, which Alan Farrington said a little bit about this. We're strip mining uh, the soil. Uh, and again, the earlier illustration you made about the uh, central banks, you know, uh, anything for number go up and manipulation or whatever. That's the same thing that we're doing with our soil today. We're doing anything for that next crop. We're doing anything for that next uh, harvest, um, regardless if it's Robin from, you know, the future generations. Yeah. Anthony, uh, I'm getting a bit of feedback. I think maybe on your, on your mic, Joel, do you hear feedback on Anthony's too? Just a little bit of clicking. Yeah. Can, are you on your phone, Anthony? Uh, I'm on my tablet. I mean, can, can you try using the, the mic and the uh, speakers on your tablet maybe? Yeah. Instead, sure. of, Let me instead just of the go. headphones, we'll just see if that's better. Uh, yeah, but so, you know, well, the, go for it, John. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it's it's a great analogy. The capital strip mine, you know, and, and that piece from Farrington was amazing. 
but you know the the soil it's such an interesting relationship the, between the money in particular and the and the soil because so much of our wealth so much of everything that we have comes from what comes up from the soil you know that's how we sustain ourselves effectively and, and to to realize how much we're degrading that and how much we're just trying to juice a little bit more and a little bit more. And we're willing to go to like such great lengths just to squeeze a little bit more until it's absolutely bone dead. Uh, and then moving on to another place. I mean, it's such a destructive practice and, and, and obviously such short-term thinking, which again is, is why what you guys seem to be doing is so great because not only are you produced not only are you providing a better life for the animals that we end up consuming and i'd love to get into that whole you know the kind of maybe spiritual side of that in a little while and producing better food and sustenance for the people that consume it but also regenerating the actual earth that that gives sustenance simultaneously you know it's it's awesome <laughs> yeah one one thing that stands out to me so strongly here which is also is illustrated in food story is how our connection to the soil was kind of the backbone of our freedoms as sovereign families, right? Like I love like the Henry Kissinger quote. I think I have it pulled up here. If you give me one second. Who controls the food supply controls the people. Who controls the energy can control whole continents. Who controls money can control the world. Like there's this intrinsic connection between these things, right? Where when we had this breakdown in the way the money functions, and we had this go bigger, go home thing where we started destroying our land and our soil. That kind of destroyed the nuclear family as well as the middle class. And that, those family groups connected a bit of produce in a self-sovereign way off of their land is the backbone of our American freedoms. Because that's what keeps us off the hamster wheel where when things get more authoritarian and more impressive, we can pull back and say, no, we don't need you guys. Fuck you. We don't have to stay disconnected to your stupidity. We're okay because we're self-sovereign. But this high-speed fiat destructive thing pulled all of our family units out of that no matter how hard they held on. And Anthony's story here of growing up Amish is a perfect illustration. They held on the longest out of anybody and look what happened to them. You got your mic back, Anthony? Yeah, I think, or uh, how is this? Is it no echo this time? Good. I think it's better, um, yeah. Okay, so uh, one little uh, one little personal story that I've seen uh, just recently uh, formed here in the last. Uh, this is also about the the strip mining of a farm. So uh, there was a local farm that switched ownership and uh, went from a, a kind of an industrial uh, fiat farming strip mining type of uh, operation to an, an uh, organic farmer, uh, an Amish family actually. And uh, so what happened is he, he comes in there, does his normal thing, what they do with their soil, and get it ready for planting, put in a crop of corn. And uh, I drive past it on the, day, uh, on, on the way to work every day. And, um, and so th this, this uh, soil, it was 22 years in the, in the hands of the previous farmer. And this, uh, this corn, uh, this corn uh, went about knee high. And then um, and it was ideal very ideal weather the, uh, uh, last year as far as rain and, and sun and, and it was ideal uh, circumstances and this uh, this soil uh, or dirt wasn't even able to produce a crop without um, and he didn't uh, because he's transitioned to organic he didn't put any synthetic fertilizers um, in into the soil and and it was unable to raise a crop on its own um, and so that that farm basically 
um, you know, with strip mine to, uh, and now, you know, this, uh, this Amish farmer is going to regenerate this, but just a, just a prime example of what we're doing with our soil. Um, eventually, you know, the, our soil won't create a crop without uh, us farmers, you know, injecting it with something. Yeah. And the, and the scary thing is that's not uncommon. I would say the majority of our soil in our opinion, in my opinion, is very much like that, where if you had a breakdown of the supply chain of your petroleum-based inputs into the soil and the farming, that we would probably even today, if not today, very soon, be pretty much non-productive as American farming to where we would just have a famine and not put a feed anybody. You know, it's such an interesting point, the one about the family and sovereignty. Uh, I guess that, you know, I, I think it's an easy one once you consider it, but it's one of those things that I think many of us maybe hadn't, you know, don't naturally consider because most of us aren't farmers and maybe we don't think about that kind of stuff. But, you know, it is interesting that if the land is fertile and if the money is sound, then you can establish that independence, right? You can get from the land what you need and sell it to the market at a rate that will sustain you and your family. And you can be, you know, largely self-sufficient that way. But as the land, as the money starts to degrade, and that requires you to change the inputs into the land, and that, that means the land starts to degrade, then you get this you get the opposite effect happening. You get the margins thinning and thinning and thinning until you're forced to go out of that that depend that independence and sovereignty and go into relationships of dependence, right? Then you have to go work for someone else. Then you have to go and enter a city or a governance structure or whatever where you're dependent on other people for your sustenance, for your salary, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, you know, I think we're feeling the effects of that today where so many people are no longer independent families. So many people are dependent on, you know, the state and companies and various other things. And of course, that's going to have a, a degrading effect on the family, right? Like when, you know, when, when you, the family is who you rely on for, you know, support and sustenance, then naturally that would create stronger bonds, both of necessity and of just being in, in constant interaction with one another, right? And realizing the importance and the, the respect between, between family members. But when, when that breaks down and people go outside of the family for all of those things, then not only does it create, I think, division in the family because you're away from the family, but also because the, the, the relative importance of the family goes way down, you know, and then to say nothing of the fact that the, the monolithic nanny state comes in and swoops in and takes the responsibilities that were once on the family and takes it for themselves, whether it be a safety net or welfare or, you know, health care or, you know, a variety of different things. So, it's a it's a it's a fascinating thing, but it also makes really a ton of sense that there is this theme of family emerging amongst Bitcoiners, right? The the kind of the the recognition of the value placed on the nuclear family, and so it only makes sense that Bitcoiners would be this this model would be appealing to them, and that you know we want to kind of go back to where the the things that made that thing strong. Right. Because if, if we start to value it, of course, we want it to be the, as the strongest that it can be. So I'd love to get your guys take uh, maybe uh, Anthony, you can you can talk a little bit about that because your direct experience was so relevant there. Right. And uh, you, you nailed that with um, the 
with the degrading of the money. And if you look at the, the cost of um, to, to operate a farm, whether it's skid loaders, whether it's trucks, whether you know, all the equipment, and you look at, you know, in the last 30 years, you look at the price that those, you know, all the way down to your gloves and shoes. And, you know, I'm being a little um, intense here, but if you look at all those different costs, uh, what it takes a farmer to operate and, and even building supplies to build uh, barns and stuff. And so, and then you look at the, the um, you know, the, 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 what they're getting for their meat, for their um, milk, you look at those prices, you know, we hit meat prices right now are, you know, around the, um, you know, at the store, they're more at retail, but they're at around 2005, 2010 prices, somewhere around in there. So, you know, if you just look at that and, you know, obviously there's going to be a squeeze. And so another statistic that bothers me is um, how many young farmers, um, as far as the, the age of farmers, um, the, the young, the young stock or the young people are not coming back. You know, they want nothing to do with the farm. And I think it's because of the environment, the intense environment, you know, actually uh, farmer suicide is at an all time high. Um, it, it's because of the environment that is created. Uh, and I touched on that a little bit on the, uh, on the onset is I witnessed that from going from a, you know, more of a, I don't like the word relax because it makes us sound lazy or just sitting around. It's not that, but it's more of a, just that nuclear family um, all working together um, at home on the farm versus, um, you know, we all got part-time jobs and, and to support the farm. And so uh, the statistics of, uh, you know, young people not wanting anything to do with the farm, and I'm not one that, you know, if you raise it on a farm, you need to farm. Everybody needs to pursue their own um, goals and their own life, uh, you know, their own what drives them, what, you know, what's, what makes them get up and, and uh, do something. Um, and it's not like a burden to them. So and everybody needs to follow that. But but it's it's at fault. It's at a level where something else is going on, and I, I believe that it's uh, because of that um, the environment that is created at home on the farm. But basically, we're we're getting part-time jobs and other jobs to support the farming. Have a hobby that we have almost. It's it's almost uh, flip than what it used to be. So, Poof, what's your experience with your like friends and family in the community you grow up in? Like how many people at first had part-time jobs? Was it like you and then your brother and then all your siblings? And then like that slowly became common among all your friends that were also growing up in those kind of families? Like how did the trickle out happen? Um, that's a good question. Um, so we all, yeah, as we became of, uh, of age as our, on our own, we did get part-time jobs and just helped on the farm. Um, uh, on our spare time as boys because I mean the farm didn't even have an, the farm wasn't even sustaining itself and so there was no way that us boys could uh, you know farm and and you know earn an income on the farm um, I would say that's probably the most popular um, you know as as the as us you know in the community as we came of age um, we got part-time jobs and that turned into full-time jobs because you know what you know we you know, you kind of go where, where your time is best treated. And so the farm didn't treat it very well, unless you had, you know, you know, really had a passion for farming. You stayed on the farm. Um, it, you know, it was me and my sister, my sister took over the farm and I, I didn't have that option. So now I bought my own small farm um, because again, land prices are crazy. And so a young guy buying a farm, you, you dig such a big hole. So I kind of moved out of the community to do that. 
But uh, I, as far as answering your question, I would say as far as in the community, as we became of age, um, we pursued uh, other jobs as part-time, and then that turned into full-time jobs. So kind of like it had already eroded at that point by the time you came of age. I mean, right, it sounds yeah. so much like the economics chart you look at where you see the productivity versus wage gap or wages stagnated and productivity is ramped for decades. It seems like a very similar thing happened to farms. Like your actual revenue of what you're selling stagnated, but all your operating expenses ramped because of inflation and it just got squeezed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's so clear that unsound money squeezes out quality, right? Because you're, you're being squeezed out by all the, le- you know, all the other producers that are more willing to cut corners, right? They're more willing to do everything to produce it more cheaply. Uh, and that just squeeze it up, squeezes out quality. So, I mean, and it, it's so obvious in so many different domains. It's, it's crazy, which, which is why it's so great that Bitcoin is starting to buck that trend. And I'd love to talk to you guys a bit about how you're involved in bucking that trend and the project you guys are up to. Joel, uh, why don't you get that kicked off? And, and poof, I hate to do this to you, but I think the quality was actually better with the headphones on. So if you could uh, okay, so. fire them back on, that would be great. Sorry about that. That's all right. It's just, it's just some kind of feedback. I'm not sure where it's coming from, but we'll, uh, we'll make it work. So Joel, poof, why don't you hit sound- us with... It sounds better when your hands are down. I think it's your Wi-Fi router is not quite getting to your tablet. When your hands are up, okay. it's disrupting the signal some, just FYI. Okay. Um, yeah. So how about you tell your last little piece here, Poof, of when you kind of grew up and then left the farm, you joined the Walmart of the cattle industry and oh, right, how that yeah. kind of led you into being what we're doing today. So this is something, uh, John, you played a role in this. Um, when I, uh, so right after the last, uh, the last bull market, um, Bitcoin, I, I, uh, a friend of mine was investing in it and um, talk, told me about Bitcoin. I thought, you know, what is this thing? And so I started going down the rabbit hole. Um, that was early 18 and uh, really started going down the rabbit hole in the summer of 2019 um, when I, you know, that's like all I could think about and, and every, pods every day while I'm doing fence, feeding the cows, bedding the cows, anything I was doing, uh, pot, uh, you know, just learning more about it. And and then I, I realized that I, I kind of zoomed out. And so what I did uh, as a job, I left, you know, the farm, I, I got a part-time job and it turned into a full-time job. And then um, I, what we do as a company is raise uh, heifer replacements for big mega dairies. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm talking about the three to 5,000, 9,000 cow plus dairy. These little calves are actually a, um, a liability to them. And so they, we pick them up off the dairies and raise them, um, to 500 pounds and, uh, and then send them to feedlots. And so, and, and, uh, when, when I found Bitcoin started to, um, you know, how that does, you don't change Bitcoin, Bitcoin changes you. And so I realized what I'm doing. Um, I am helping Walmart of the old days, you know, of, of the past, um, uh, defund all the little mom and pop shops. Uh, on every street corner, you know, all the different street corners. Um, I, I am helping Walmart basically yeah, defund them. And so that made me realize, okay, so why am I doing this? I grew up on a 50 to 75 pound dairy, and now I'm, I literally jumped the fence, and I'm helping uh, um, raise these heifers. And, you know, that's all that we do as a company. And so we've 
we've gotten pretty good at that. And, uh, and so it, it was bothering me. It really did. Since 2019, it, it's been bothering me. And I, I'm right in transition now of leaving the job. And so I can uh, focus on this, uh, on this co-op deal that uh, Joel's got going and, and just a freebie of my time that I can fully focus on this because I feel like this is my chance at helping the smaller nuclear family versus helping these big mega dairies. Um, you know, basically, and there was a, in 2020, uh, there was uh, on average two farms, dairy farms a day going bankrupt or, uh, and or selling out, just being done with it. And so, you know, I, I'm on the other side of that fence. And so I um, decided just this this last uh, since in 2021 that I'm going to quit my job and uh, and I'm transitioning to something else so I can focus on this uh, because I feel like this is my chance at helping yeah the nuclear family um, be more sustainable and self-sovereign again. So I've been in a similar situation right where I've dreamed for years about getting into doing the regenerative agriculture using cattle right following the Greg Judy or the Joel Salatin model. And so, like, you got Poof over here who's stuck in, like, the Walmart as a metaphor of the dairy industry. And then you got me as a young guy who I'm sitting back wanting to get into doing this. It's been a dream of mine for a really long time. And then it's like, like it's like, like all of us, right? Like, I need to save up a bunch. Maybe one day I'll have enough money to buy some land. Everything's running away from me. How do I get self-sovereign in this world where I can't save? And then like we find Bitcoin, right? Like now we can save again. And so it kicked off this thing for me that's just been magic. I mean, as of like late winter 2020, like I was still pretty much broke even as a as like in my personal finances. Um, only really this bull run is getting me out of the hole of what it took to build a successful small company. My, my main cash flow is currently as I own a fencing company doing contracting work. Um, and as we built this farm and ranch that I have, it sparked off this whole idea that's just evolved in the cattle co-op today. So, so to step back, like the cattle co-op of what we're doing, we're trying to enable self-sovereign families and communities through starting at this cattle and land as the cornerstone because the money's being fixed. So now that's next. That's the next step of us building this kind of citadel network, right? So what I'm trying to do is build a matchmaking organization that exploits these incentives that showed up that I found when I was building my farm. So there's a lot of wealth out there right now that in this whole fiat fast burn thing that's just going to pop, they all know that everything's a bubble and it's all just going nowhere. And it's like, where do we put our money besides Bitcoin, right? It's like, even after this bull run, like, where do we cash out to if we wanted to take any chips off the table to diversify? Like, there's Bitcoin and there's, and there's, there's just, there's nothing. <laughs> um, so as I was building my farm, I had some guys who were fairly wealthy reach out to me like, Hey, I want to be a part of what you're up to. I was talking about it on Bitcoin Twitter. And what we ended up doing is setting up the situation where they could invest in regenerative agriculture as a wealth diversifier. So scaling up my ranch, I had an investor buy my cows and we set up cattle contracts where he owns them as a hard asset. We have a very deep focus on like resilience in the genetic base of the animals, like ability to survive without any like supply chain inputs, like medical stuff, 
you can throw them on rough land. They're kind of ancient woods and brush type cattle. So they're kind of a pretty deep, safe store of value as far as just like toughness and ruggedness is concerned. So now you got a hard asset. And now as we raise them, you get real yield because what we're doing is the investor gets a percentage of each generation born. And me as the land steward and rancher, I get a percentage of every generation born to fund me in the operation and pay me for my time. So now I've given them an investment. They've put a lot of upfront capital in which functions as a bridge. So now me as the farmer, if I have a long time preference, I'm able to get back to the self-sovereignty dynamic. So this fiat farm world is still broken. I mean, there's all sorts of weird fads and the incentives when you're trying to sell cattle, like, like black cows in most markets sell for a pretty significant premium. Cows with horns get a dock and they don't sell for as much. So like, cows with a certain name or certain sizes go into the regulated butchering industry and sell for higher prices and all the money incentivizes the wrong behavior. So what we've done that's very different is we're not building these businesses to account for like short-term fiat cash flows. What we're doing is collaborating as a community with the mutually shared incentives for building wealth in soil fertility and animal wealth, as far as these deep genetics that need to be preserved for us to kind of have the cornerstone of resilience as the world changes. And when you're doing regenerative agriculture the right way with these cattle kind of following like the low input Greg Judy style of grazing, it really doesn't take that much time to raise a cattle herd. I mean, I'm going out every two to three days to move a little bit of fencing for my cows, I mean, we're talking five to six hours a week or less of time. So it's very easy as long as I have cash flows for my life. If somebody bought the animals, my carry costs for the animals are very, very low. And somebody helps, which is the other part, provide the capital for the land for us all to collaborate and yield wealth together. Because for me, doing the low input style grazing, my labor is the same rather than raising like 20 cows or I'm raising 200 cows for most of my average management tasks just week to week versus some of your big events like castrating and stuff. So when we come together and they're able to help me scale my time so that my same time input produces more output, we all can share together in the fruit of that labor, which is just kind of basic economics, right? Like we come together to do together and be more. Um, so doing this myself involved in this whole opportunity of like, why can't we do this for other people to help them get sovereign too? Because if I would have sold off my Bitcoin back in January, February to like build out some of my infrastructure or like November, October of last year to help pay for the cattle, like I'd still be broke. The fact we work together here is what enabled me to get financially free and self-sovereign so that like, I can invest my time more thoroughly to help build better things in the world and invest in building better soil and better animals. So ever since I did this and people saw me get free, I've also had investors in one year talking to me of like, we love what you've done here. These are great investments for the guy you gave these to. Like, can you give us more of these? And I've had ranchers in the other ear, like, this is beautiful. How did you build your farm? Like, can you help us learn how to do the same thing? And I just came to the idea of like, look, let's just put these two parties together. 
And that's what kind of birthed the cattle co-op here is that when we collaborate with this low time preference, we can overcome the broken incentives with knowing we're solving for wealth measured by a different metric currently, knowing that it works from an operating standpoint for now, and that if we have the right time preference that we can sustain doing it, like using like a lot of times for a lot of these ranches, the guys are going to be guys that are doing it part-time like I am. And then when the world shifts to kind of the Bitcoin renaissance, you know, and the like high-speed fiat world falls, if that really causes a crisis, like I expect it to, where you can't get the medical stuff for the cattle industry, or like you have a large scale fertility breakdown, or Bill Gates buys up all the prime land, most modern cows aren't going to be able to survive anymore on systems that don't work like the fiat system does. And we have the corner on the market. So, from the investment perspective, these guys are pretty stoked because this offers them a real investment that has real resilience for the world changing which does not exist in the world today. Does that make sense so far, John? Dude, it's fucking awesome. It makes a shit ton of sense. <laughs> yep. So I got, I got so questions, but you, you, you keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So the investors, like I, I kind of expected these guys to flinch. So, I mean, we're already live and running, right? Like this is how I built my farm and I've already kind of got the website live and I'm taking applications to be a part of it. And I'm doing interviews. And I've actually talked to more than one family investment office. And I expected these guys to be flinchy, right? Like I explained to them the legal risks of the anti-meat agenda and like these different risks of like, like in Colorado where they're trying to like say that any sort of penetration of an animal is sexual abuse, but if they actually pass this law, like you can't preg check, you can't, anti, you can't artificially inseminate, you can't pull calves if you have any calving issues. Like, so like they're trying to do this subtle way of making ranching illegal, right? So like there's all these really weird risks all across the country. And I thought these guys would get flinchy about it. But when I pitched it to them, they're like, look, like even in the broken industry right now, you have real yields, even if there's small single digit percentage of points. He's like, I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, okay, everywhere else is nominal, not keeping up with inflation. I love it. He said, okay, but if the world really collapses, we do better. I'm like, yep. He's like, why are you trying to talk me out of this? Like, how much can I give you? He's like, I have a minimum investment size. You think you guys can handle that? I'm like, uh, yeah, we, we could probably try to find some farmers to work with, you know? So I've got all these guys that are just loving this thing, right? And like, I don't think, I think my limiting thing of size is going to be education speed, which, I mean, to tell you how easy this is to teach intelligent people, I think I could get somebody running cattle in a regenerative system where they're being successful with the basics with a day or two of spending time with them on my property, showing them what I'm doing. I mean, the advanced level stuff, I mean, you could follow the rabbit hole as deep as you want using cattle as a tool to manage ecosystems of endangered species, birds through grazing with a certain intensity during the season to benefit these plants that cultivate this part of the wildlife ecosystem, right? Like right. you could go as far as you want to go. But like to be successful, like at that little bit of effort to get to where at a day-to-day -day basis, it's actually healing the soil when you're raising the animals well, like a couple days worth of education. I think my problem is going to be spinning up enough ranchers to manage all the properties that people are going to want to buy up. Because in the long run, I mean, we're kind of like the tweet that popped was the anti-Bill Gates tweet. He's buying up all the prime land. I think he's going to try to short squeeze the whole meat market in order to push everybody into his like soy fake meat bullshit, right? I mean, especially if he does this whole spray the sun thing, right, for changing the climate, like probably what he's trying to do there, too, is once again, short sell the farm industry 
and push everything to his greenhouses where he doesn't need the sun. That way he corners the market. Usual MO for Bill Gates, right? Evil Corp. He like creates a crisis and tries to swoop in as a savior, right? But if we can have these deep adaptable animal genetics from these ancient bloodlines that are resilient and thrive no matter what the conditions are, we can buy up in their woods and brush type cattle, the regenerative systems, we could buy up all the scrubland nobody else wants. We're going to take care of it with the right time preference using stewardship to heal it. He destroys his shit and in a decade or two, we own prime land all over the world. So it's like poetic justice if we sweep in and through healthy stewardship of our correct time preference, we become the ones who are the dominant driver of the system. It's just such a beautiful thing. And it only works when we come together to collaborate, to align the incentives of what we all desire to do. So the capital from these guys who want these investments of restorative type deep resilience, and then the farmers who want to get out doing the work so they have self-sovereignty. And you put those two together and it's magic. But the magic is found in the fact that we're willing to do this with a low time preference. So most of these farms, the cornerstone of the original farm node is going to be somebody you can run it part time like you're a remote worker who can do software work or whatever you're doing, and you're doing this five, six hours a week. And then eventually as we scale, you know, we can have one guy running multiple locations. You can scale it out to a full-time job. But at first, like we're trying to bridge the broken marketplace with these investors that are willing to think about having long-term animal and land wealth. That way, when everything shifts, that's going to be at a real value for something more, right? Rather than just nominal. And then these farmers who are willing to put in their time to build animal wealth while sustaining their own cash flows so they can wait. You can wait this four or five years to accrue a large percentage of the herd that somebody invested in for you, right? That time preference of collaboration where we don't think like equity or cash flows, where we think real value shared over time, lets us supersede the broken incentives anticipating when that's going to matter again. Yeah, you're kind of blowing my mind right now with all of this. <laughs> it sounds incredible. Let me let me just clarify a few things, you know, for everyone listening, because that was a lot. Yep. But so <clears throat> you so let, you, you know, you get these investors to come in and they will pay for the cows, right? So they'll pay for the asset. Do they pay for the land or do you do like a land lease with someone who is willing to cheaply lease the land? So the Greg Judy model is you go after mutually beneficial incentives of cheap land leases. He often goes after people, wealthy people who own hunting properties, and he'll manage it for them using the cattle. The cattle improves the land, which makes the wildlife preserve stronger for growing better game. And it just makes the whole place freaking beautiful. And so they're leasing him these places with lifetime leases for a buck a year, or just a nominal cost. That way, they don't have to do any work managing their properties improving year in and year out. The real estate value is increasing. He gets the land and is happy to do it because now his business, one of his main capital expenses is just nil, right? Mm. So there's all sorts of places where that can happen. I have a similar one that you guys heard me talk about with Nanya where I got the similar situation. But that's a whole other dynamic of this project. So we've got guys who are investing in the animals themselves. Separate of that, we're building a co-op of land trusts. Investors all over the country, whether you're talking family investment offices or high net worth individuals, a lot of these people want to diversify into real assets, one of the biggest ones of which is land. 
Now, us Bitcoiners know like land has negatives. I mean, it can be seized and it also has a fairly high carry cost. When you run a farm on the land, the carry cost of the taxes goes way, way, way down. You get agricultural tax rates rather than normal tax rates for like residential real estate or whatever. So like that's part of my situation is I'm helping a lady get her real estate deduction back on her acreage as well as diminishing her work of having to manage it. So she's saving almost 10 grand a year by having me on her farm. So that kind of is a sense, my lease payment. So we have a lot of these people who have been calling me of like, hey, I wanted to invest in the land, but I don't want to deal with the carry costs. I don't want to have to deal with stewarding the land. A lot of these high net worth individuals that are calling me, they're like, I want safe fallback properties for my family. I want a place that if shit hits the fan, that I, I can go there and it's good, like it's ready to go. But I don't know, one, how to do that or two, have the time to go do it. Because as the world's chaos like this, it's also opportunity. And I want to stay on the horse to capitalize on it all in my field, because this is where I make the next chapter for me and my family. And they're like, well, if, if you're willing to manage the land for me and steward it, you're improving the property. So the real estate value is going up. You're getting it ready for me and my family. So it's a productive asset in case we want to build a house on it as a fallback place. And I don't have to do it because you're happy to do it, even if I just ask you to do it and I lease you the land for free. So not only do we have investors calling like, hey, we'd like to invest in cows. I have investors calling like, hey, I want to invest in land and give it to you to steward so you can increase the property value for me. I mean, one, we could flip it if like once it's repaired and regenerated after like five, 10 years, or if it's one of the ones within my own network. It can be a fallback for my family or my community or even me, depending upon which part of the world I want to drop out to if things get too crazy. Right. I so, even have investors calling me who are talking about like, hey, I really want to invest in self-sovereign families again. Help me regenerate these lands so I can do a development of a self-sovereign micro homestead community. And we'll do we'll use your land stewards as somebody who can stay on site, educate how to build their gardens. They can run the animals still full-time on the big acreage while everybody else is doing their small little community homesteads on their one acre or two around. And they will be a land steward that helps cultivate getting these self-sovereign communities off the ground, which what a fucking perfect thing for a Bitcoiner to do, right? Like you can teach these people all the other things of self-sovereignty and how to have this thing never happen to us again where we become serfs on our land that was our father's, you know, where we could enable these communities to just birth out starting with the cattle as the incentive that makes it work. Man, that's so great. <laughs> you know, it's like super I'm, th cool. I'm, I'm thinking now is like cattle and an energy source to mine Bitcoin being like the foundation for, you know, these little towns or cities or citadels, right? Like those are the two building blocks. Um, but just to go back to, to the summarizing all this. So you've got the capital that either comes in and buys and is the upfront capital for the cows and or the land or you have a land lease uh, partner you know in in either case incentives are aligned then you have someone like yourself that's willing to say hey you know like i i got six hours a week that i could devote to this to get paid for doing this to live in let's say an environment that i want to live in on the land with the animals that kind of thing while i do whatever else that i do perhaps remote work or whatever um, and as you just described, you know, what the potential for, for those relationships and those aligned incentives is amazing as you were saying, and, you know, as a side note, I used to work in, in wealth management, right. And we used to sell 
uh, land plots, like in Canada, especially to to your average investor who wanted to spend like 25,000, 50,000, whatever on land. But it was just like empty land that they hoped would be chosen for development someday. And, you know, so the, the reps would come into our office and they'd be like, you know, there's an 8%, 12%, whatever percent yield over the last 10 years on our land offerings or whatever. And the, the wine people would come in too, right? And be like, you know, we only buy premium Bordeaux. We put it in, in vaults in France and it's got an 18% year return. But I can totally see, especially in this environment, as you said, for the purposes of diversifying and also like, what the fuck are you going to invest in these days, you know, given the investment landscape that people like that sell is a real easy, I would think would be a fairly easy sell for, you know, for, for savvy investors. So it'd be like a fallback that also provides yield uh, that I don't have, you know, that's based, I don't have to do additional work for I just provide the capital like I can I, I can see that being extremely popular two questions for you uh, one and I know you have a longer term approach to developing wealth in this and, and there's other returns beyond you know let's say capital or financial returns but are you able to to tell the investors that are expressing interest what a annual yield is or might be and the second question is you were saying that, you know, some investors are interested in you kind of like prepping their citadel for them, right? Like in case, you know, so what does that mean for like the role you play? So let's say I'm a Bitcoiner and I want to do this. And then five years down the road, you know, the rich guy swoops in and he, you know, takes the land that I've been building. Do I just have to be like, well, that was the agreement I signed up to. It's yours now. And I got to pack up and, 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 you know, find a new place for myself. So the role I'm playing, I'm not building this cattle co-op as a centralized authority that kind of cornerstones the market or kind of corners the market to rent stake. What I'm trying to do is decentralize matchmaking, where I find an investor, I interview them, I make sure they have the right first principles approach that they're going to better be a part of the system. And then I find land stewards who want to do this. I interview them, make sure that they're going to be willing to learn and do things the right way. And then I bring the two parties together and I help them negotiate independent agreements. All the agreements will be unique to the parties that originate them. They're going to be semi like following like our pattern, right? We're going to have an open source toolkit that can just be easily replicated. But so say like the guy with the land, part of the way that I intend for a lot of these to be written, and this is what I bounced off a lot of the early investors was like, okay, this guy's out there stewarding your land. His incentive is he wants to be self-sovereign and homestead, but he's young and can't afford to buy property yet. Are you willing as a part of his contract where he stewards your land to give him a lease to own that he's not actually paying you in money, he's paying you in time stewarding of improving your property, that he's essentially dollar cost averaging and labor as a like private mortgage of sorts into owning his acreage of a one, two, three acre corner of this giant property they carve off for him. And that due to his time he puts in on this management, that land becomes his. So now he's able to have land he can start homesteading immediately. His mortgage is actually just due to this mutual incentives where he's paying in time and expertise rather than in money so that you don't have that capital exposure of trying to jump onto the fiat treadmill of debt in order to acquire these types of self-sovereign situations. So ideally the incentives always really stay aligned. We're trying to recruit a lot of the investor network 
who doesn't want to flip these things real aggressive. We want ones who want to build these kind of self-sovereign communities in a place where it's always an opportunity for that land steward to stay and help keep contributing. That way, like he owns his couple acres, which will always be his if we design the contracts that way, which I'm hoping to get everybody to do. But like that he will always have an opportunity to be running animals on the larger plot too. Does that make sense for that part? Yep, 100%. Okay, and then the other thing, what was the first part of the question? The you first asked? part was just like, do you even uh, quote uh, an annual yield when you're having these yes. conversations or do you, do you frame it differently? So we're trying to frame everything in real terms rather than nominal. Because I mean, that's where the breakdown of the fiat market happens, right? We're rating everything in this nominal yield system with a broken measuring stick. So we're designing all the contracts as the cattle contracts are measured in animals, not dollars. You get this percentage of each generation born, right? So like say the investor, and we've broken it down to two animal classes. You own like each contract equals one animal. Each animal is not tied to a particular animal. It's just percent of the herd owned. Um, every generation born, it's broken into two stocks. You've got meat stock, which is either coal quality animals Cull meaning the ones that like are lower like health and genetics you don't want added back in and bred into the herd or they're like your steers that you've castrated to send off for butchering so those are the meat stock and then you got breeding stock which are the animals that actually go back into the herd itself so your meat stock is kind of like your dividend yield of like your cash flows so now you've got more you own more animal wealth you have more animals that you actually hold in your portfolio now you can go out and sell those animals. You can sell them on the market for money, for cash flows, or you can do physical delivery. You could butcher them, collect the meat, and that's your sustainable income of like food for your family, completely disconnected to, from supply chains because your farm's low to no input and you own it. You know your own farmer and you're cultivating your own success of feeding your community, right? Or we've even got the contracts written where if the investor wants to get off, start homesteading on his own, he can bring out a trailer and pick up his animals. It's like everything's just literally accounted in animals to physical delivery and then doing with the animals what we want, where you can put them into the marketplace to sell them to people like in the farm sales for meat or whatever. Um, so the positions offer those. All contracts are negotiated to a unique percentage because once again, it's a centralized agreements. We're not doing like a centralized thing. So the farmer and the investor will just look at a spreadsheet we've built that's a tool of if I think the risk is this of animal losses or this many animals are going to breed this consistently, this herd's going to spit off this many animals a year. This is what goes to the farmer. This will go to me. And then you play with the present future value calculations to see how that cash flows based upon like expected price yields in the marketplace and stuff. So we, we're going to have a toolkit that makes it really easy. So you can kind of project out those things. That's but awesome. these typical contracts are being written with a like five to 10% meat yield, meat stock yield of animals going to the investor and like a zero to 5% of uh, breeding stock going to the investor. As long as we can keep finding more like cheap land to graze through these mutually beneficial leases or these land co-ops, the herd can maintain kind of a convexity for the position. Because if the herd can keep growing, your underlying grows, even as you're getting real yields in the meat stock too. 
Right. So in, to clarify that final, that point there, you were saying the zero to 5% is basically the growth in your herd and the five to 10% is you're selling meat yield, right? So you're, you're the ones that you call, you sell their meat, you get cash and that's your, your yield. Yes. Or you collect it as meat to feed your family or in the community. You can right. just actually take delivery itself. Right. And so as long as you continue having enough land to raise your growing herd, then this, you know, you, you could have a appreciating asset as it were for a long time. Yeah. In perpetuity, as long as we can keep finding land to repair for cheap. Um, I mean, cause you think about it, if you got a five or 10% meat stock yield with no carry cost, you're getting a real yield of, if you have a 5% contract, you carry 20 cows, you get a whole cow for your family every single year with no carry cost. So with your upfront investment, you're funding feeding your family in perpetuity forever. Jesus. Um, is, is anybody doing this right now? Like, is this a novel approach to this? Like, let's... Due to the low time preference of the way we're accounting this in animals and not thinking cash flows, I don't think anybody else has come up with this idea yet. Can you expand on um, that, that distinction real quick? So the farmer's working part-time. We're not trying to make him work full-time. We're not trying to generate a salary hourly for him. We're using this where the farmer has the incentive to build animal wealth and land wealth. So the farmers are happy to do this without treating it as a business. Nobody else has tried that approach as far as I'm aware of. Everybody's trying to build farms still inside of the worldview of the broken fiat mindset of making it a business that works, solving for yields and dollars. We're circumventing that by leapfrogging it in saying all economics is, is mutually incentives. If you want this and I want this, how do we meet that together? So it's more of almost like a barter style economy in some ways where we're providing the wants in the marketplace, completely circumventing the cash flows in a fiat US dollar system. It's almost like your unit of account is the animal wealth, the health of the land and the the opportunity that it provides for both the investor and the uh, the person who's managing the farm, right? Like those are the things you're optimizing for. And therefore those are your units of account, not just dirty fiat gains. Bingo. Like self-sovereignty, cattle wealth, land fertility are a unit of account that we're trying to grow and increase. And the marketplace is ecstatic about us providing it. I got Man, investors and ranchers right me now. <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> Uh, Anthony, how do you feel about all this, man? Uh, you know, you're, you're obviously start, be, you know, getting involved. Like what, how does this all sound to you, especially coming from a background of, of the way that your family, you know, managed stuff or was forced to manage stuff? Yeah, it, it when I, uh, when Joel and I, uh, connected on Twitter, uh, it, it, uh, it, it makes sense. It just, it, it clicks for me. Um, as far as uh, this is this is what the industry is missing. Everything everybody's chasing that um, average daily gain. Everything now is just based off of average daily gain instead of looking at um, the long term view. And so it yeah. As far as how I'm taking it, I like I said earlier, um, I, I just quit my job and uh, and I'm transitioning to a different job that I can uh, have more of my time relieved and, and solely focused on this and bring bring anything i don't um have a you know mathematics background or anything like that i have a strictly i love cattle raising cattle and so uh going back to how these ruminants were designed to be um in the fiat world and, and getting squeezed we've also 
um, the husbandry of the of the cows the uh, has also uh, been fiatized. Uh, we're sticking them in these little crates and and things like that versus uh, how they were designed to be. Um, and so this was this is very it, it just clicked. It um, it, it's it's what uh, this is based on my ethos. Amazing. Joel, give me a sense of the day-to-day -day for someone who's like considering something like this. Like what, uh, you know, what's the nitty gritty of raising cattle, right? Like you, you said like, well, you know, move a few fence pegs and stuff like that. But obviously, you know, there's, there's, there's more to it than that. What, what characterize it for me? Okay, so holistic prey and grazing, regenerative ranching, we're mimicking the pattern of nature to recreate kind of the wisdom of the way things are supposed to be. So like you think about the Great Plains out in the Midwest, like our nation used to be known as the breadbasket of the world, right? We had like over 10 feet of topsoil in some places that was just so fertile and productive. Um, part of that's due to the way the Native Americans managed it with the controlled burns and some of those things. A lot of it was due to these herds of bison, right? These million head herds you hear Lewis and Clark describe in their journals when they're out adventuring out in the West, right? These animals, due to predator pressure, were forced to bunch up really tight for safety, right? They're kept in these mobs because if you don't stay tight, you're going to get picked off as singles. So when you're in a tight mob, you got this competitive pressure. I got to eat what's in front of me or my neighbor's going to eat it because we're all just jammed here and we're hungry, right? So you get this intense non-selective grazing pressure over all the land. That's one principle. We could explore these rabbit holes forever about why these matter. I'm going to cover the basics really fast. So you've got mobs, intense non-selective grazing, grazing everything down. They do that over a short time period because they're bobbed together and it's intense. They manure all over it, they trample it, and then they move because there's no food left. The bison would typically migrate with the seasons. I mean, north to south kind of as the weather changed. So you get long rest periods of the land recovering. I mean, with the bison, 180 days, a whole year as they get back when the temperatures change again, sometimes more years, depending on how they hit that area during their migration pattern on like a year-to-year -year basis or if there's a part of their wider swath. And so that pattern matches the life cycle of a grassland species incredibly well. I mean, you get all sorts of little benefits. You get root pruning that kicks off a like compost cycle in the soil. You get recovery periods that enable the grass to catch its acceleration curve of capturing it's like sun energy through its foliar structure. Like, you get like a capitalization of like the land brittleness factor as Alan Savory calls it, where you're grazing the land before it grows so much, it shades itself out and chokes itself out, but you're still getting recovery. So it's not getting overgrazed. So it actually has a chance to grow and capture the sun energy, right? Because what you're doing with this system on grassland is you're purely capturing sun energy from the sun, carbon from the air, and you're converting it into wealth in the form of fertility in the soil because the mineral layer is already there. I mean, the whole, the whole world is mineral layer of rock, sand, clay, something, right? So you're just putting organic matter in the soil straight from the air using the cows to convert the process. So it's kind of like proof of work and then storing that work generated from an infinite resource that's gifted to us by creator. <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, I mean, because grazing like this is carbon net negative, which is a whole nother rabbit hole. Um, so we are recreating that pattern. So rather than predator pressure, we're mobbing the ruminants using electric fencing. 
So we had these paddock designs where we got a strip of electric wire around the exterior. And so I have a bunch of these little plastic step-in posts. Got a little six-inch steel spike on the bottom. They got a bunch of little clips at different heights on the post. So what I do is I got the cows out in this pasture. My pastures are designed to be kind of long and semi-narrow. So these long kind of lane ways, right? And every day, or like every one to three days, I'll go out and I'll take a bunch of these posts and I'll just step them in the dirt every 10 to 15 feet. And I got a big geared reel that's got thousand feet of this electro poly wire on it i reel it up and i reel it out clipped into all these posts and i reel one on the other side i graze that down based upon the knowledge i have about the grass like the grass this species in this part of the world you graze it down to this height to maximize recovery and you graze based upon these time periods based upon the health of the grass which is like standard rules less than four days right you want to be moving them more often than that and then I go out there, I open up the little clip, the cows are trained, they walk into the next section, and I go out and reel out the wire and the step-in post to the next allotment of grazing. And I go out and I do that two to three times a week. That's my average management task. Stepping in a post, reeling out a wire two to three times a week. That's the day-to-day. What about like impregnating you know, the, the animals and stuff like that? Is that done by someone, a third party that you bring in or how does that work? Most headaches you run into in ranching world are due to getting away from the first principles of the cows no longer being treated as cows. I mean, you think about a wild herd of buffalo. How do they impregnate and breed, right? They just do it themselves. <laughs> like, how do they keep their guts clean of the parasites? They don't need to. They're tough, right? Like, how do they deal with calving difficulty? Well, they don't because if they didn't calve well, they died. Those animals didn't survive, so most of them calve pretty easily. They're like, how do they deal with sickness? Well, right. the weak ones died. So they're, most of them, they're pretty healthy, right? So when you bring the right first principles approach with the right animals, we went back and we got ancient genetics cattle. So like, uh, I'll step back a little bit. In the, like, the regenerative grazing world, a lot of these guys knew this was a problem. They started trying to like, when the regenerative thing became kind of a, a movement after Alan Savory did his studies in Africa. They started trying to use cattle to do this whole system on forage, low input, not feeding them grains and all sorts of junk like Anthony was describing. Um, They found that modern cows were just dying. They couldn't survive in these systems. Without these energy inputs and all this other like amendments, the cows weren't able to breed back. They're having calving problems. They're not staying healthy with all this medical stuff. So some guys went out to try to solve this. They went out and selected some of the best of the best of the modern meat breeds. Like a South Pole is a good example of this. They went and got an Angus, a Hereford, a Centipole, and a Barzona. And they picked the animals based upon, we're going to put them on this forage. Whichever ones can survive on the forage, we're not going to add any sort of like help to them. So we're going to see what actually happens with the animals on site, like in the conditions given. And we're going to select for which ones like have good mothering traits and fertility that breed back consistently. Because that's what nature picks for, right? Like you think about some of the most healthy animal genetics, they're often island populations of an animal that got stranded on an island somehow. And it was a small group. So you think narrow gene pool, right? It's going to be problems, but that never happens. You have this group of animals in this isolated pressure where the weak animal just dies because nature killing it off over and over. So you actually end up with a lot of genetic variety because nothing's getting selected for except for fertility and survivability. 
So they recreated that. They bred out some animals like the South Pole and like a lot of that's been really important for the modern regenerative grazing movement. But my perspective was that those animals still have a very, at least a somewhat narrow gene base because they came from some of the modernized stock, right? Which is good for them. It cre creates pretty consistent yield. The animals will look very similar. Like you, it makes the system pretty easy and you have a pretty consistent output of animal size and things like that for running these farms and businesses. But my worry is this whole zombie apocalypse thing of the dead apocalypse, right? Like, what if Bill Gates really does spray the sun? Or what if we can't get medical supplies at all? Or like the world drastically changes in climate because like somebody does something foolish. Like with this narrow gene pool, do they have enough adaptability to survive? They're bred for the right first principles, but like, are they resilient? Because they have, they don't have that genetic breadth in them anymore. So what I did is I went and found the most ancient bloodlines I could of a real tough animal that bred was bred and raised to the right first principles. I went and got Piney Woods cows. They are one of the two original breeds that were brought over to the North America during original settlement. They come from Spain. They're little small woods and brush cattle that were shipped over with the settlers that could be released into the woods. They would be able to breed on their own, be fertile on their own. And even if the whole village or settlement died off, the cows would survive. So when the next ship got there, they'd know for a fact there's food because they didn't know going to the new world, right? Would there be food there? So these animals have such a wide genetic base. They have all sorts of throwbacks. Like, uh, like the guy I bought mine from, one of his cows threw out a cow that looked just like a longhorn. Like he didn't have any longhorn in the breed. It's just like in his actual like, like genetic like ancestry, but like he just threw one <laughs> because they just, they have all this different variety and you get all this interesting things that happen because that just, they just have that in them still. So it gives you this huge breadth of adaptability where if the world changes, maybe not all of them will make it. I mean, they're gonna make it a hell of a lot better in modern cows, but you're always gonna have some that have that gene pool that are gonna do well no matter the conditions. So when we bring these kind of land race, land race meaning selected by environmental pressure over time for which animals survived, when you bring these kind of land race animals into the system, like the majority of all those headaches disappear. We've had to hyperbreed the animals for performance due to these fiat incentives, right? And it's just made the whole system fragile where there's all these headaches of just management nightmares. If you go back to the right first principles of these were like originally wild animals we domesticated that can thrive on their own. So why don't they, why can't we just treat them like wild animals that can survive on their own, right? When you get back to that, everything gets easy as long as you can solve this marketplace dynamic of not having to solve for USD cash flow and yields. Does that make sense? It, it, you're, blow, you're blowing my mind. It makes all the sense, you know? So you, you're basically like breeding, you know, apocalypse, apocalypse ready pleb cattle, right? You, you, you put the fence in and you let them do their thing. And, uh, you know, that's the bulk of your work, it sounds like. Bingo. The genetics that the genetics we have in the uh, in the beef world and in the dairy world today are so specialized for that fiat return that you were talking about, um, uh, Joel. And so uh, this is again uh, Bitcoin uh, Bitcoin plugs. We go back to first principles, and and then that's exactly what you're getting. And and it takes so much of the headaches out of all the added chores and all the added um, 
um, headaches that we've created for ourselves due to that fiat, um, you know, cash crop, quick cash crop uh, type uh, of view instead of that long-term view that, that Joel very well is. Um, Joel, you got to read the book uh, Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. He really hits on, they made that switch from, uh, they used to calve in February, uh, February, March because of their, um, it, it worked better for that quick turnaround, selling them in, and uh, w when they switched and, you know, they lost cattle due to uh, snowstorms, they switched to, he said, when I finally knew that I made it on my farm um, was when my beef cows were calving and the deer were, and I seen spotted uh, baby Bambies running out, you know, a baby cat or baby deer, you know, they were calving the same time the deer were uh, having there. So, you know, and, and they said, you know, the snowstorms, the weather is great. They don't lose as many baby calves. It, they were creating that for themselves just to, with the fiat world, they can make a little bit more and they're, you know, versus um, less headaches and, and, and letting nature do its thing, basically. It's yeah, I, I love how, I love how Joel Salatin says it of like, our goal is to let the cow be a cow, the pig be a pig and the chicken be a chicken. Like if you're not treating the animal to its essence, then you're screwing up from the beginning because you're going to just create headaches by trying to be itself. something that what already is. It sounds a lot like anti-fragile farming, you know, uh, in, in almost every respect. Joel, tell me about the end of life for the animals, right? So you mentioned some will be called <clears throat> for meat. Uh, and then, I, you know, obviously the animals die at some point. Just shed some light on how that process plays out for me. Do you mind if I answer one other thing that Anthony hinted on there that I'd love to circle to? Fuck okay, yeah, so, dude. <laughs> so our modern breeding world is very fiat when it comes to animals. Um, Anthony could describe this really well, better than I can, because he's been in this world. Um, like in the dairy industry, he was telling me about like, they're testing for genetics with this reductionist mindset, which is totally fiat, right? Fiat is we think we can control all the variables. So we reduce things down to saying, if I change this, I'm going to get what I want here because I have the arrogance of thinking I can totally know that's going to be the outcome. And it never fucking is because you can't control everything. Like we live in a world that's larger than us that we have to submit to its principles. We cannot play God. It's not our place. So like, Anthony, like, how do they, like, tell us about the genetic testing the dairy industry is doing now. Yeah, so uh, there's been, just lately, it's really um, exponentially, their feedback loop has exponentially grown in, in, as far as the technology. And so um, what, what the dairy industry is doing is they have five different uh, bloodlines that they'll rate their uh, cows. And then the top bloodline, they will take those, uh, those eggs of those calves and they will um, inseminate them with the, their top bulls. And then they'll, um, and, and this is all geared for production, for milk um, production. And they do have a resilience uh, monitor or um, I'm not sure what to call it, but uh, health aspect to it too, not just strictly um, for you know, milk production, but that is the key driver. And so what they'll do is they'll plant these eggs in the, in the cattle. And then uh, when this baby calf is born, and, Okay, let me back up a little bit. They'll use the bottom bloodline cows as surrogates or as um, beef cattle, or then they cross them with beef because they don't want those bottom two bloodlines, you know, going back into the gene pool. And so, um, and, and now they just, the technology just came out that usually when the calf was born, they would have to wait until four to six months old to scan the calf's um, genetic code. 
and then use that data to, you know, and then they can flush her, her eggs already at four to six months old. Um, and now it's come to the age that they can laparoscopically do it um, at 60 days of age already. This is just new, just, just came out. And so, uh, so the fault that I see in this is that the eggs that they'll be getting from these little 60 day old calves, they're, they haven't even seen more than one season. And so how will it's so based on the genetic code and their, and their levers that they're using and their different, um, uh, genetic base that they have, it's all focused on that. And, um, so therefore it's, it's all dependent on their own knowledge of, of what they know about the cow. And if you start digging in, I've cut open many a cow already and the room and the GI tract, it's so vast. And I, we, we've, you know, learned a lot of things about it, but we can't understand everything and how it needs to adapt to different um, diseases that come through the area. And um, so back to, back to this, so they, their feedback loop basically 10x. And so the, instead of four to six months, now they're doing it in 60 to, you know, 100 days, they're getting that feedback loop. Um, and then, you know, they'll, grab, they'll slush your eggs and put them in, you know, other cattle um, a, a, as little calves. And so what I see happening is, is you know, they're going to exponentially grow so fast as far as with their code base and their um, genetic pools that they have that it's just, it becomes more fragile um, to a black swan event or, you know, something like that. It could, it could raise havoc, you know, whether it's a, a virus or whether it's something like that, that goes through um, the, gen, you know, in the dairy world, it could really raise havoc. Yeah, so if you think about it, they're breeding based upon their reductionist understanding of the genome on their spreadsheet. Uh, like one, how much genetics knowledge do we actually have of what coding here does what, right? Like it's all based upon like correlation research of looking at an animal that had this, so we expect that. But two, so if you step really far back, big picture, we went from land race animals that are selected by environmental pressure as the stressor of test over time, over generations, hundreds, hundreds mm -hmm. of years, to farms that are doing this over a couple of generations, like two to three different calf crops, to farms that are doing this over a lifetime of an animal, to farms that are testing the genetics and doing it all of like five or six years of life of an animal, to then like five, 10 years ago, they're doing it off of a year or two life of an animal. Now they're testing these animals. Are they tested in vitro before they were already born? or are they testing right after birth? Right after birth, they can laparoscopically um, check the, the scan. I just call it the scanning, the DNA of the calf, the genetic code. They can do that at that age already instead of waiting so long. And so, you know, yeah. that, that's, that's 10Xing their feedback loop. Yeah, so we went from stress of environmental pressure over hundreds of years being what selects the gene pool to us with our reductionist spreadsheets doing it in a matter of months. I mean, and like, we're going to be so surprised when this shit hits the fan of like, oh, we never knew this would go wrong, right? Like, like a great example of what happened um, in Angus world. And uh, they had something happen called curvy calf syndrome. Everybody bred to this bull that I thought was the greatest bull in all the world. And a couple generations later, they have all these calves popping out and Angus all around the country that are being born with non-functioning spines. And they're like, man, what is causing all these problems? Why is this happening over and over everywhere? 
And so everybody starts testing their animals. They really do a lot of good work to pursue this, to figure out what went wrong. And it all tracked back to this one bull everybody thought was the best bull. He had this hidden gene nobody knew that caused this problem. And they've had a hell of a time breeding it back out of Angus now. They've done a really good job solving it. But that's a really good illustration from the different approach. Like the reductionist fiat mindset is I arrogantly say that I know enough to select the parameters to get exactly what I want. I know it's going to happen with 100% confidence. Versus what I say with like the Bitcoiner mindset or like an Austrian economics mindset, I don't know enough to know. So what I do know is that when I subject these animals to stress on location, they show what's inside of them. Like if they're environmental pressure, seasonal pressure, whatever, like on my farm. When I've got these animals, the ones that are weak are really, really obvious. I mean, you can see the one that gets a runny nose every so often. You can see the one that like her calf doesn't grow as well, or she has a little bit of troubles with her calving or every farmer knows who as weak as two or three animals are. That's super obvious. What your best animal is, I would argue is unknowable because we don't know enough to know what is best. We can say our best animal per this parameter, but that parameter in the long haul doesn't necessarily define it for us because we just can't see enough into their gene pool of like what would develop over time. So the different mindset here, we are trying to with our animal breeds, move the average of the herd up over time by culling the obviously poor that aren't thriving in the given conditions, rather than trying to reductionistly pick the best and put that best into all of our herds in a way that causes systemic fragility of not knowing how to control it all because you just can't know enough. So once again, even the mindset's different of planning with this long time preference, Bitcoiner humility of solving for the right first principles. Does, does that make sense for why that's so important, John? A hundred percent. And it's such a great microcosm of that broader mentality playing out on in, pro, in, in pretty much every domain and every industry in the fiat world. I mean, it's a perfect, it's, 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 you can observe it everywhere. But I, I would still like to know like the, the end of life of the animal. Like yep. when you say culling the, the weak ones, like what does that entail? So I touched on this a little bit with Nanya. I believe that like, uh, like I, I love, I love the, the quote, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it'll bear no fruit, right? Like no greater love than this, than a man lays down his life for another. There's this idea that all life comes from death. I mean, we see it as like, we love our wife and our child, you know, like we give of ourselves, of our energy. We plant that into bringing life for them. Like you see it in your farming you, you have the seed, you bury it like literal death. You put it under the ground and then a new crop comes up. When we've gotten so disconnected from our land, we've lost the respect of that natural cycle. And so because of it, I believe we've lost respect for the gravity and honor of our own life. Because if you don't have that honor of knowing that other things have given their life for you, that you might live, you don't pay homage to that and gratitude in the way that you steward your energy of your life force that you've been given. You live with an arrogance of trying to extract things from the world rather than treat it like something that's a gift with gratitude that is your role to give back into this world that's just such a treasure that we've been spoiled with, right? Like, like I, 
I love the Native American mentality, like when they'd hunt, like they would wait for the animal to present and give themselves to them to know that that was the animal. It was their time to take because that's the gift from creator. Like this is the one whose time it is to go. And they'd bless it. Like, thank you for your life, brother. Like I will live in a way that's worthy of the gift you've given me. So my desire with this 100%. whole system is to bring this connection to honor and land back to our food chain. So like with us, with a lot of my animals I'm selling in the local community, I intend on having a butcher day where I bring up my buddy who's a butcher and everybody who owns these animals will pre-sell them as live animals. You come out and butcher your own cow. We will kind of walk you through the essence and the heart of why this is such a sacred process. He'll show you how to do it. You'll be there as a part of the butchering process of both the killing of the animal and of the breaking it down for meat to put it up into like cuts for your family and try to reintegrate this gratitude back into us respecting this gift. Because I mean, that's why a lot of this whole veganism movement comes from of feeling like we disrespect their animals and we do, but eating meat is not disrespectful. It's that loss of integration where the disrespect has just become entitlement rather than gratitude that the problem is. When you can come out and own your cow and scratch him behind the ear and be a part of thanking him for his life as you feed him to your family, it's just a whole different thing from a spirituality perspective that, in my opinion, changes our entire focus and ethos of how we're supposed to live as human beings because it regrounds us into a deeper ethos. I could not agree with that more. And I, I spoke with Paul Saladino, um, the carnivore MD, last fall, I think, um, on this very issue. And <clears throat> I went hunting for the first time uh, last fall as well. And, you know, after we, we downed the moose, you know, I went over to it and said a little kind of internal prayer. And it, I definitely do think that when you're that close to the sacrifice that's required for you to sustain your life in the most optimal way possible, it does influence how you deploy the energy that you've received as a result, i.e. how you live your life, right? It's so easy when we're detached from everything. We go into the grocery store and we just pick it up off the shelf and we go home and we eat it while we're watching fucking Netflix. Like you're so detached that the, the reverence for the opportunity that you've been given to extend your life and therefore the proposition of what the fuck are you going to do now that you've been granted that opportunity, right? What are you going to do with that life force and that agency and that health and that strength that you have been granted be, be, as a result of that sacrifice? It becomes a far more explicit uh, proposition, right? And I think I, I totally, I think you said it so well, I totally agree that uh, that's been, people have been disconnected from that and that proposition has been lost. And to see it, to think that it could reemerge and that people could have a greater respect for what extends their life. And as a result, how that imbues their life with meaning and value and influences how they choose to use their own life force for whatever ends. I think it's gonna be a, a tremendously valuable change to, uh, who people are, I guess, ultimately, and, and certainly how they act in many ways. Absolutely. I mean, it's a privilege to get to steward our world. And we need to get back to where we treat this such, right? Like hunting and butchering of animals, it doesn't have to be taken. We've been given this role as stewards by creator with the life that he created. And it's a form of receiving when you can step into the process with this right mentality where we've been given this gift 
And we have to live worthy of that gift and the way we use the life that's given us. I'd love to see that reintegrated into our world. That won't be how we butcher all of our animals. I mean, obviously we're gonna have to sell some into the sale barn industry and things like just as a part of managing animal liquidity. Mm-hmm. Um, but my heart is to drive this ethos as deeply as I can using this as a part of that process. So as it stands right now, do you bring a butcher in and then you, you're there while the animal is culled and, and cut up or do you do actually do that yourself in some, sometimes? So I have not butchered any animals yet. I got my animals delivered in October. Um, the goal was going to be to do it that way, to have like a barbecue day where the butcher's out with us and we just go through as many animals as the butcher, my butcher buddy's willing to do with us. We'll throw one on the grill or have one on the grill already going for feeding everybody in the community that's out and just everything, everybody be a part of that process. Man, what a spe- Oh man. It's amazing. I mean, like even just that, like everyone coming together with that respect and reverence and sharing in, in the sustenance that's being provided and, and being so close to the process required to receive it. I mean, man, that's, that's what I'm talking about. A hundred percent. Yeah. Technically things like that are illegal as a lot of things are <laughs> value. In our the loophole is that you're butchering your own animal because we're selling them as live animals. Right. What's the so, illegal then, part? Uh, the entire lobbyist industry has been pushed towards big ag to make it difficult for small farmers. Right, it's like there's all these crazy USDA inspection and cost of butchering operations in order even to build a butcher shop. And like, it's all absurd. The quicker that thing falls apart, the better. Um, yeah. Thomas Massey and Caitlin Long are doing a lot of good work in Wyoming and pushing the Prime Act. I would love, love, love to see that adopted nationally because it pushes for like the ability for farms to sell meat off farm more directly without having to deal with like interstate transport laws and USDA butchering laws quite as severely. Um, that is one of the things that's killing the family farm. And it's been done, in my opinion, on purpose by Big Hag. Man, powerful Bitcoiners representing everywhere, huh? In so many ways, we don't even know, man. The more people I meet, the more beautiful this world becomes because I'm able to see what they're actually up to and doing. Um, do you guys mind saying where you are just so people have an idea of where this is taking place or do you want to keep that private? You're not, not city or just state, you know, would be sufficient. I'm in Eastern Virginia, so Suffolk, Virginia, which is where I'm building my first ranch. As far as the investors and people calling me, they're all over the country. Um, a lot of them are the same situation where they're like, I just want to build somewhere freedom loving and safe. So what I'm working on doing is with the team, putting together a spreadsheet where we can, based upon a ranking system, kind of figure out, like, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I kind of agree with Liberty Blitz that we're going to go through a balkanization of sorts in the U S where we're going to kind of break down the territories eventually. Either Seems that fairly or likely, likely, yeah. Or an authoritarian nightmare state. So I'm hoping the former, <laughs> um, <laughs> So what we're going to try to do is build this spreadsheet where like, when did the state put mask laws? Did they even institute mask laws? When did they revoke the mask laws? Are they pushing mandatory backs? What's their gun laws like? Are they, are they a part of this part of the like thing happening with like, um, like, uh, I don't know, like, uh, like crazy just different, policy like shit. all, yeah, all yeah. these different crazy policy shit and give them a ranking. And then we can use that to kind of preemptively predict where in the country these lines are going to get drawn. Because you like you look at Florida, right? 
it shocks me to see what's happening in Florida. I did not expect that one. But what, ever, when everyone it happens, going there? Well, no, where the, the governor and all that is like anti-medical ID stuff with the right. mask laws. Like, I mean, you look at that election. I mean, it was like tenths of a percent or hundredths of a percent that like decided he was the mayor, like the governor of Virginia, or, uh, Florida. Like it could have gone either way, right? Yeah. But now since it did go that way, it's a feedback loop. All your freedom-loving people are moving to Florida and it's just getting more and more going to be that. So as these lines get drawn all around the country, that divergence will get stronger and stronger. The freedom lovers will flock to the places that are advancing it. And the nanny state people will flee to the ones that are more that way too. So this will naturally gravitate towards the states we want to be in for self-sovereignty anyway, because it's what we as an investor network and as a land steward network are already solving for. Most of the people talking to me were looking at Wyoming and Texas and places like that so far. Um, but I've also talked to a few people in Oklahoma, Colorado, just all sorts of different places. Dude, you're, you're building a Citadel map and then providing the means for people to actually go and do it with very little friction, right? Because the, the model is like, you don't have to be a, a, a super wealthy Bitcoiner to go start your Citadel. You could go start it for very little upfront capital because of these arrangements that you've brokered. And you're telling people, these are, you know, choose from these best options. These are what you can expect in these places. This is what you can expect from this model. What do you think? I mean, th this is fucking mind blowing, man. Like this is, this is the beginning of the Citadels. And I, I agree that we're probably going to see a balkanization. And I hope it's that rather than the, you know, the total authoritarian nightmare. But it's almost if, if things keep going the way they're going, I mean, we're going to continue to see what we see happening where certain people who value freedom and independence and sovereignty are going to go to the places where that is more prioritized or protected. And those that don't are going to stay behind. And, you know, whatever friction arises from the, that divergence, who knows, but like, this is, this is huge. And I, I'm, I'm struggling to contain my excitement on this thing because like, <laughs> you know, we, we all are, I think there's a lot of anxiety amongst a lot of Bitcoiners, like where, where do we go and how do we get set up to, you know, be away from the craziness, but also ride out whatever transition or, or whatever turbulence uh, is in whatever transition is to come. And like, man, among, this seems like a pretty damn fine uh, approach to a solution to that. Man. Yeah, it uses the cattle and land to create the incentive structure to kick off the ball of the Citadel creation. Because um, yeah. a lot of these guys initially are going to be remote workers and such. Like we talked about dollar cost averaging labor into like wealth measured in different accounting metrics. Um, but I mean, there's all sorts of other things. Like I got Bitcoiners talking to me about buying up the properties that have these stranded gas wells doing stranded energy Bitcoin mining while ranching with these operations that's what all I'm, around at the same that's time. That's what I'm talking about, you know? Yeah, I, I'll tease something else too. I'm talking with another Bitcoiner, um, cough, cough, none yeah. Um, <laughs> we're doing an analysis on doing a biochar operation. Do you know what biochar is? You probably don't. That's an ag world thing, um, regen ag world thing. Okay, so you look at some of the most beautiful soils ever developed, like the Terra Preta down in South America. Um, scientists have tried to figure out for a while why that soil was so incredible. I mean, it's to the point where you can strip mine 10 feet off the top, come back a decade later, there's 10 more feet of topsoil. It just self-replicates. Nobody really knew why until they dug into the research. 
when you look at the history of this place, they did a few unique things. One, they kind of put all their human manure, human waste in this pile. Then they burned all their trash over top of it. And when it was burning, they'd bury it with sand. What this did is it pyrolyzed all the carbon in the absence of oxygen. So you burn off all the volatiles, but you don't actually burn the carbon itself. So it forms an activated charcoal of sorts. That activated charcoal is like full of all these little micro pores that all the soil biology, the soil food web, kind of soil food web can kind of live in. It also acts as this kind of buffer for like nutrition, water. It can increase the water carry capacity of the soil, all sorts of other stuff. So that charcoal creates an environment in the soil that's very, very different than soil is without it. It just, it's very deeply resilient because it's like a safe habitat for the soil food web, right? Okay, now you're also storing carbon directly in the soil in this form with a super long half-life. It's just fossilized essentially for nearly forever. Um, so in regenerative ag world, we've learned this. And so what some people have gotten into doing is using a retort to recreate that. So you pyrolyze the wood or whatever carbon source you're using. You burn off all the volatiles and you're left with just this carbon, just this biochar, this activated charcoal. You can use it as a soil amendment. You can feed it to your animals for health reasons. I mean, activated charcoal is so good for you in general. Um, but part of that, with those volatiles, you can actually capture certain spectrums of them, kind of like gas refining. And there's one portion that's called syngas. Syngas is like a natural gas. You can literally run a generator off. It's like a compressed gas you can just feed into and actually run motors. And if you compress it, you can actually transport it, run your trucks, run your tractors, run anything. So we're working on an operation where we do silvopasture. We're, this is it's not in action yet. We're doing the feasibility research on it, like, but it's part of the dream. Where you do a silvopasture. Silvopasture meaning you're growing these fast growing tree crops in the pasture. You can grow trees in most areas with like a 30% density of leaf cover without it competing with the pasture at all. It won't slow the grass, it's actually beneficial. Like you can produce like bean pods off the trees to feed the cows to increase food per acre. But with the right trees, like a black locust, it has an energy density comparable to coal. And you can coppice it, meaning cut it off, harvest it, and it regrows from the same root over and over and over again. And it grows fast. I mean, you're talking a couple of years before you're ready to cut it, harvest more again. So you've got this self-regenerating source of an energy density comparable to coal that's just growing from the sun while also helping feed your cows. Okay, you feed this into a biochar retort, you harvest the syngas to power your homestead communities, and you do all that while using whatever excess syngas that you don't want to store to mine Bitcoin. You got your self-sovereign wealth and power network, self-sovereign food, Henry Kissinger quote, is now officially accomplished. Citadel networks have begun. Too much. <laughs> <laughs> um, and would 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 you be able to har harvest enough? I know this is very early days for this uh, concept, but would you be able to harvest enough wood in that model to do both to to you know power your operation and even throw up some miners? So this is Nunya's project. I have his permission to leak pieces of it. Okay. Um, so everybody know like this is his jam, not mine. I'm consulting with him. I'm not trying to steal his fire. Um, and I do have his permission. But uh, this is the feasibility research we're doing. Hey, Poof, do you got to jump right at 10?
Uh, no, I'm good yet for a little bit. You're good. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so here's the feasibility research we're doing. When you're doing these burns, the burn boxes have to be of a certain size in order for it to kind of be like the right scale to be efficient. So what we're looking at is it seems like the right scale for efficiency actually is a shit ton of inputs. I think what Nunya told me, it's like three tons a day of dried chipped wood matter or carbon matter. So a lot. But that amount is putting off not just the biochar, which is the main product that actually is a profitable business of itself, because you can sell it to the ag industry. It's putting off enough syngas. I think the number he gave me was like 165 kilowatts of continuous power while it's burning three tons a day. I don't know how much you know about power ratings, but that's enough to run a shit ton of Bitcoin miners. <laughs> right, but that's you're saying that's three tons of that material a day? Yes. So there's other ways that are work there besides just harvesting your own. I mean, so say like we're buying up distressed land, right? Right. So we right. have to clear it. So a lot of these guys that are doing land clearing work and tree companies, they chip this stuff and actually pay to dispose of it at the dump. So we could do that with our own land rather than pay to dispose of it. We turn it into Bitcoin and biochar to make our land more fertile or power for our communities. Or this is one of the things that Nanya is doing for his business model. He's calling up different local cities and saying, hey, you guys have people that bring you all their broken tree limbs and stuff every time there's a storm to your city dumps. And they have to pay to dump the stuff there. He's like, what do you do with all this stuff? They're like, we don't know what to do with it. It's becoming a nightmare for us. He's like, well, would you guys be willing just to give me all, this, all the waste chip debris and I'll just take care of it for you guys in an environmentally carbon net negative way. They're like, you could do this carbon net negative, you know? And they're all stoked. They're like, we'll pay you to do this, right? So potentially we can actually get contracts for the inputs as a waste product from other like resource streams where they're paying us to dispose of their problem to make carbon that we can store in the soil to heal our land and Bitcoin and energy for our family networks. Man, what... What a dream. And, and this, doesn't seem this that, is, that, that far-fetched. This is permaculture mindset. You're like permaculture, like the like decision heuristic and regenerative agriculture so many people bring to things. You're trying to find ways to convert waste streams of one thing and synergies of one thing by connecting it to another to come out with a viable product that is helpful, helpful for your operations. Mm -hmm. So this is like, the kind of just dirt, like hands in the dirt, feet on the soil type thing. Guys have been doing a regen ag for a while, bringing that mentality to these high level business type thinking of how do we do permaculture as a business organization, right? So it's just the beauty that happens when you cross disciplines and bring a holistic mindset into a new world where creativity just blossoms for these new co competitive type marketplaces. Yeah, I feel- Solving is, for a different, different situation. I feel what you're doing is- and obviously they're, they're, we're talking about both here, but I feel like it's very much kind of like the stranded waste gas Bitcoin mining idea where it's just like, it ticks so many boxes that make sense. You know, you're just like, yeah, like th this is going to be huge. Yep. It's so any like, other questions? Uh, <laughs> go, ahead. Go, go ahead, Anthony. Uh, the tweet I had the other day was the Madapadil Citadel Dispatch you merge the Citadel Dispatch that you're you're heading up, Joel, and and Matt's Citadel Dispatch. It's an unstoppable force. It's it's yep yeah. Um, well, look, guys, I know it's been it's been two hours. Um, 
and I want to be, you know, I know you guys probably have lots to, to do. Um, if you guys have any more things that you wanted to mention or bring up, then, then by all means. But one of the last things I wanted to make sure to, to get from you guys, and I'll put it in the show notes, is like, I kind of want to go down this rabbit hole now. So if you guys have like your top three books or resources for understanding more about this stuff, um, if you could tell me, you can tell me after you can say it on the show, uh, and I'll also include it in the notes. Uh, that'd be awesome. But if there's any, any other bits you wanted to, to hit on before we shut it down, uh, by all means, go for it. First one is a TED talk by Alan Savory. I'll send it to you so you can link it. Um, it's just called Greening the Desert or something like that. A book would be Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. Um, and then there's also another documentary as like Kiss the Earth or Kiss the Ground. I think it's Kiss the Earth. That's another good one. Um, I can send you links to all those. Sweet. Um, if you don't mind to tie a ribbon on it all, where we're at in the process now is we're actively taking applications to be a part of the co-op from investors and ranchers. We're trying to go through state by state to check the legal boxes. We're trying to design these things as co-ops where you have herd shares for animal boarding. That way you don't have to run into securities laws. That's unique to every state. If any of you guys listening to this know lawyers that have experience in herd shares and stuff like that with animals, please reach out to me. I've got a legal team. We're working on this, but it's going to take us a while to chew through it all. If anyone wants to volunteer for helping with legal research, reach out to me. Um, my email is uh, cattle co-op, a dash and co-op um at untappedgrowth.com um and then interviews are happening now as we get the legal boxes checked we'll go live state by state and start kicking this thing so we need people who are willing to kind of do the land stewardship people willing to invest in land trust people willing to invest in animals then eventually we're going to try to have an education platform as a part of this and have gig workers and teach people how to do all this as well man i First of all, anything I can ever do to facilitate any of this, you let me know. But I think people are going to be really interesting, uh, interested to see like that map you were talking about, where people can just have a resource where they go and, you know, they obviously have things they're looking for and they can run down the list and they, it can be like, you know, whatever the, the criteria are. And they'd be like, yeah, that's where I want to do it. And then just plug into what you guys are offering and match make and you're off to the races. Yeah, if anybody, as far as the map goes of states' rights and how those lines are going to get drawn, if any of you guys listening want to be a part of that, I'd love to hand that off to somebody to head it up. I can tell you all the rules I'm thinking about how we can rank states, but I mean, that's so much bigger. I'd love to or open source that. It's just like a Google Doc or something. We as a community just keep contributing to it. Yeah. Any other questions, John, of stuff that we missed here? I think no, we're pretty I'm good. I think we're good for now. I'm, I'm, we're going to have to do this again sometime because, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a lot we're leaving out, but Anthony, uh, I'll throw it over to you for your three books and, and final comments. Um, I, I have, uh, uh, oh, actually only one other book to add is a, a soil owner's manual by John Ditka. Um, I think I, that's how you pronounce his last name, but, um, he is, that, that's a very good book. That was kind of, uh, the Bitcoin standard of, uh, a regenerative egg, um, to me. Um, that, you know, that, that, the, the Bitcoin standard to Bitcoin, the, the, the soil owner's manual kind of to the regenerative ag to me, for me, um, then that Alan Savory video as well. Um, I'll shoot you any others that I come to think of, but those would be, and then the dirt to soil obviously was, uh, is also a very a great book. Um, but uh, one other thing I wanted to reiterate a little bit, um, so I might've 
kind of come across as uh, kind of critical about the fiat um, farming, and I am um, because of the short-term um, vision instead of long-term. But I, I do want to make sure that um, the farmers that, you know, as my dad was back against the wall, had to make decisions. And so some of the, the farming decisions that were made were not made from, um, you know, it was made out of desperation to keep, um, to keep the family farm going. And, and so they went to different measures, uh, you know, regarding the husbandry or the feeding, the, 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 the diet. And so I, I just want to reiterate that uh, due to the incentive, I still blame it on the fiat world uh, distorting incentive structures and um and and therefore the farmers were still feeding um the the consumer what uh, they desired but through this we've deteriorated um uh the farming industry in, in my opinion so i just want to reiterate that um i'm not uh, t you know making a lash out against farmers because um i know you got to do what you got to do but I, I i encourage you to to think outside the box and to think um, regenerative ag and to think um, what am I am I making the soil a better uh, this living system you know we're, we're treating it as a chemical laboratory versus a living system today and so I would encourage you to um, dive in on that um, you know is this sustainable what I'm doing to the to the soil and so that's one thing I would I like to leave before I go yeah, yeah and I, I appreciate go ahead I, I would say like <clears throat> like the exact same message that I would say to millennials who can't clear the hurdle height, right? Like so many millennials live at home and can't get out of debt. Like to the farmers, this is not your fault. We've been given a deck of cards that just was an unwinnable game. The Bitcoiners that everybody thinks are too toxic, we're your allies in a way that nobody comprehends. We are trying to fix the underlying system so that you can be successful again, boots on the ground. With you guys boots on the ground, if anybody hears this, if there's anything I can do to help you out, please reach out. This is my heart to help everybody be successful again, because the more successful we are at these long time preference investments of soil and food, the stronger our communities and families will be to support freedom all around the country for the next generation. Amen, man. I'm, uh, couldn't have said it better myself. I'm super pumped. I love the work you guys are doing. Thank you so much for the time today. I know we'll be in touch again soon. And if I can do anything for you guys, uh, just let me know. Until then, uh, be well, boys. It's an honor, John. Privilege is mine. See you guys. Peace.